Let's grab our Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, 2 Samuel 11. Uh, we, we, are, we are going to pick up where we really left off last week. Uh, remember last week, we instead of looking at, at the entire passage and all the detail we could, uh, because I wanted you to be able to go home and change before Thanksgiving, um, we, we, we really want to see really just part two. Uh, and even then, I, I think we'll take a few things out. And if you're nice to me, uh, I don't know how some of you all Kentucky fans have been treating me today. If you're nice to me, we may get out early. But uh, so having some of y'all say go cards or something like that will go a long way. But that's, that's okay. But uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we want to read the first five verses again. <laughs> Uh, I believe it's on two, page 262, somewhere around there in your pew Bible. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And he ravaged the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, and David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. He lay with her. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Let's go to Lord and pray. Our Father, we ask as always that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, and our ears that we would hear and heed what you would have us to believe. Our, hand, our mouth that we'd speak the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ. Uh, Lord, these sort of texts are difficult, and they can be hard, uh, but in many ways they are like a mirror. And may you lead us to righteousness. Uh, that we may fight the flesh and temptation, that we may become more like Jesus. May I decrease so that you can increase. In name your son, we pray. Amen. Seated. You may recall some of the things that we said last week, that, that what we have here in David, in chapter 11, is a story of David that has been primarily uh, climbing the ranks, if you will. The story just keeps getting better. That doesn't mean there weren't hardships for David, of course, certainly when he was being hunted by his father-in-law. That, that is a, a, a rough time in David's life. But he has finally received the crown that he was anointed for back in 1 Samuel 16. And he continues to extend the borders. There seems to be some, some real peace going on in his kingdom. Everything seems to be going well. And it is because of personal choices that David makes. Because he gives into uh, the, the desires of the flesh that we talked about last Sunday evening, that now all that David had worked for and all that had been given to David, all those blessings that he had been gifted with, now they begin to crumble. You remember what we did last week? We, we began with the setting here that, that, that the, the army is out to war and David stayed behind. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, he, he has, he's the king. He has generals who, who, who are perfectly capable of, of winning the battles. And, and the king will win or the generals will win some, some battles here against the Ammonites. You remember the story of the Ammonites is that David was trying to do a nice thing. 
uh, that got turned into uh, a bad thing, right? David was accused of things. I, I think it was the king and, and his and all the king's horses and all the king's men uh, spread false rumors on Twitter, and that is uh, what what happened. Um, but nevertheless, uh, from that setting, David is is alone in the palace, if you will, and and. Uh, that leads to the sin. And what we see here in the sin, in David, in these opening verses, is the pattern of how you and I often surrender to temptation. How you and I, uh, we give into temptation. You remember what it is we said last Sunday morning, even last Sunday night, that if we know the enemy's playbook, we can prepare ourselves for what is uh, to come. The same is true when it comes to temptation. The, 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 the tempter... Uh, uh, works the same way with the same plain book he has for thousands of years. And you remember, again, this is all reviewed from last week, the opportunity there in verse 2 is that he uh, wakes up one day, there is less responsibility he has, his military, his army, everyone is gone, and he is waking up from his afternoon nap, and there he sees Bathsheba bathing. His palace would have been high up on a hill, probably the highest point in the entire city, and so Bathsheba would have been farther down, thinking she is in in, in privacy, and actually she is being exposed uh, to David. And that is an opportunity, right? Now, now, David waking up from his afternoon nap while his army is out to war, that is not a sin. But it does give him an opportunity. Again, we said last week that what, what are opportunities for sin to you may be very different from me. And the problem comes whenever we, we, we recognize those opportunities. We recognize those moments in our life. But for some reason, we will not close those doors. We just want to leave them cracked or at least hold on to the key just in case. Just in case. Not only does David have the opportunity, but he is in isolation. It is hard to be held accountable when there is no one around you. He is in isolation. And we talked about how his wife, or we should say his wives, are not present here. One wife in particular is significant in the story of David, that is McCall. You remember that they've had a marital fight, and they are now sleeping in two different bedrooms. And they, that conflict, I believe, uh, contributes to his sense of loneliness his sense of need, his sense of entitlements, and the lies that he was able to believe. Thirdly, we talked last week was his curiosity. This is where David and us, we, we just want to dip our toe into that water, don't we? We just want to dip our toe in that water. I remember when I went to Africa uh, when I was a seminary student, um, we, we, we would have to cross the river. It was the Niger River. And I remember uh, the, the, the missionary says, look, it's a beautiful river. Don't go in it. Right? It is a polluted river for various reasons we won't explore today. I'll save it for another illustration. So I thought, well, I at least want to dip my toe in it. Right? And so I literally you know, went out there and dipped my toe in it. Right? And I think this is the way we are. We, 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 get, we get curious. And, and, and through that curiosity, we start to tell ourselves lies. It's not that big of a deal or, or, or I can get away with it or no one will need to know, whatever it might be. And we see that there with David, don't we, in verse 3, where he inquires, who, who is this person? Who is she? Where is she from? What's her story? But this week, we want to look at the fourth pattern for surrendering to temptation. And that is weakness. Weakness. You notice here that the temptation for David has to do with a beautiful woman that is being exposed to him. That's a weakness for David. It's a weakness 
for most of us. One of the things I've learned in playing sports and watching sports, except for football, of course, because football doesn't matter in the state of Kentucky, (laughs) is that every athlete, no matter how good they are, if they're a Hall of Famer or just an amateur, and every team, even if they are national champions or Olympic gold medalists or whatever it might be, every player and every team has a weakness. So in basketball, for example, if, you, if you're watching film on the team you're about to play and you notice that point guard really favors his, his right side, he's, he's always going to, the pick is going to come, he's going to go to the right. And in you as a coach or a player, you've got to defend this person, what are you going to do? You're going to do everything you can to make them use their weak side, make them go left. In soccer, there's really two general approaches to offense. One would be a slow-paced, possession-driven game. The other is a more fast-break game. And if you see that your opponent, they they like the possession ball, what are you going to do? You're going to make them speed up. If they're they're more of of a fast-break, what are you going to do? You're going to make them slow down. Same thing in basketball, right? If you've got a team that likes the high press and and they like like to play really fast, you're going to do all you can to to, to limit the game to a half-court offense. You're going to run that clock down. Out and your defense is going to make them play a half-court offense, right? If, 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 if you're a pitcher and you see this guy really likes a low and outside fastball, what are you going to do? Probably going to throw a curveball slider on the inside, whatever, you know, that, that seems to be a, a weakness to him or her. Look, every player, no matter how gifted they might be, has a weakness. Every team, no matter how gifted they may be, has a weakness, I remember whenever I was growing up and playing soccer in middle school, I, I wanted to play like any other athlete that you just want to be on the field, right? And, and I, I learned something. All of us on the team were right-handed, which meant none of us wanted to play on the left side. So I figured something out. If I could use my left foot good enough to convince the coach that I have a better left foot than all the other non-lefties, I might get to play. And it worked. It actually worked. You know, you're going down the left side, and if someone gets to the middle, they think I'm left-footed. You know, I won't tell them the truth. You know, I'll repent later. And it worked, right? You understand there is a weakness, and you must work on that weakness. This past spring in coaching, our, our first middle school season, we played a team. All their offense came down one side. And like 20 minutes into the game, I thought, why is it that, that, that they keep, you know, almost scoring on us? What's going on? And then it hit me. Well, they're, they're playing one side of the field. What if we made them play on the other side? You have to be really good at sports to figure stuff out, like that out, right? <laughs> you have to be really good. So, so when you start your starting lineup, what do you do? You bring balance, right? Because you assume they're going to be balanced. Well, when you realize they're not balanced, what do you do? You unbalance your team, your defense, right? I'm going to put my best defenders on that one side, shut them down on one, this side, and you just go and win the game, right? I had two guys like, you're going to play one at a time. You're my two best defenders. You're going to wear yourself out for 10 minutes. You're going to sit for 10 minutes. I'll put the other guy in, and we're going to do this the whole game. You're going to wear them out on defense. You're not going to let them buy you, right? Everyone has a weakness. And whether we're talking about sports or we're talking about our moral lives, we all have weaknesses. Men, you have a particular weakness when it comes to lust. You do. You do. God has made us visual creatures, and too often we use it to objectify women, to ruin marriages, to destroy homes, or to serve only ourselves. Now, to be clear, this isn't our only weakness. We 
weaponize our pride and our power. We're often consumed with greed, the, the need to be respected and admired and, and affirmed. But we have weaknesses. And here, it doesn't surprise us that the great fall of David has to do with lust. Now, ladies, to be clear, you're not exempt from this weakness, are you? I mean, think about it. If this were only a problem with men, the Bible wouldn't have to address it so often of the time. A few weeks ago in our Bible study through Genesis on Wednesday nights, I gave a brief survey of that. This is a pattern throughout Genesis, starting from Adam and Eve all the way through, that lust and sexual sin is all over the place, that often the greatest heroes of the Bible, we're talking about Abraham and Hagar, Judah and others, right? It is sexual sin that seems to destroy them, sexual sin that seems to often define their great fall. And David isn't exempt from this. Why? Because that isn't unique to the human experience, not just with men. But with women as well. After all, it's not Joseph who was looking to, to, to violate marriage vows. Rather, it was another man's wife who was trying to seduce him. Look, if this was just a male problem, it wouldn't need to be addressed as often as it is in the Bible. I remember whenever uh, where I was still a, a new preacher, still had the new preacher smell, you know? And, and uh, I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we were doing, doing the verse where Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. In fact, I tell you that any man who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery in his heart, right? Matthew chapter 5. And I remember I, I started the message with a very simple uh, boundaries, right? Number one, this is not just a male problem. It's a male and female problem. Number two, it's not just a young person's problem, right? It's a problem for all of us until the day that we die, right? Went through the text. Everything seemed to go well. At the end of the service, uh, an elderly widow came up to me. and says, Brother Kyle, I appreciate you just preaching all that. These young men really needed to hear it. <laughs> Can we go back to point one, lady, please? It's not just a problem with men. Men can often pressure and feel entitled. Women can just as easily seduce. And yet this is a problem for all of us. We are weak. And the sooner we recognize and confess our weakness, the better we will be. Jesus warns us of this, right? Remember, he's talking to the disciples in a different context, but still same application. Watch and pray, he tells his disciples, that you may not enter into temptation. Right? Remember what he said then? The spirit is willing. It's the flesh that is weak. Well, too, I, I doubt most acts of adultery or violation of marriages or whatever it might be, that they woke up that day and said, today I want to ruin my children's life. Today I want my marriage to end. Today, I want to ruin this or that or engage in this or that. I don't, I don't think most of us wake up with, with that in mind. But what happens? The spirit was willing, but our flesh proved to be very weak. See, it's not enough for us to say, well, well that's not as big of a problem for me as it is them. Again, the, the lady who said those young men need to hear that. Loving our neighbor requires us to recognize this and to act accordingly. Men, you must learn to practice self-control. You must learn to see how unchecked desires and the lack of control dehumanizes and objectifies the women in our lives that we are called to love. At the same time, 
I do struggle to understand why it is controversial, on the one hand, that, that, to say that men shouldn't lust or dehumanize women. Eh, that's fine. But the controversial side is to look on the other hand and say, women, will you please be more sensitive to the weakness of your male counterparts? I don't understand why that is controversial. Whatever that may look like, it may be in the realm of modesty, maybe in the way that we, we, we talk to each other, how we address each other, and in how we carry ourselves around. And I don't know, but, but for some reason it's controversial to say that. That we in love should help one another to grow toward greater godliness. One of the things I've learned, again, in sports is that what separates your average athlete, person who just wants to go out there and have fun, have mama take some pictures, and maybe make it in the school yearbook at the end of the year, right? That sort of athlete. You prefer this to stay on the bench, right? Unless, of course, your football team's up 50, 52 to 21, whatever, some ridiculous number it was last night. At that point, if you're Louisville, you might as well just play your third-string chess players for quarterback, right? That's enough. That's enough. Okay. <laughs> but what separates those great players from your average player is their ability to acknowledge their weakness, and to address their weaknesses. See, your average player, they just want to go out there and have fun. If they score great, if they win, even better. But those who want to be great, those who want to succeed, will humbly say, this is an area of weakness for me. In basketball, it probably is use of your, your weaker hand like it is for me using my, my left foot. In football, maybe it's, it's strength or speed. In baseball, maybe it's hitting that curveball or whatever it might be. To do acknowledge you have a weakness and to address it accordingly. The same is true for Christians. Athletes are called to review their failures, listen to good coaching, make adjustments, and work hard to fix the problem in order to succeed. Christians are no different Unless you and I are willing to review our failures, listen to godly counsel and wisdom, make appropriate biblical adjustments, grow and grow in sanctification, you and I will never be victorious over our sin. The problem is oftentimes when we come into the church, we want to give the facade that there are no weaknesses. Our homes are always clean. Our lives are always perfect. If you don't believe me, check my Instagram account. They're edited and filtered for you so you can live under that delusion. Rather than to come humbly before the cross and say, it was my sin that held him there. And I am guilty. I am weak. And despite my best efforts to be like Jesus, I often fail. But the good news of the gospel is that where I am weak, Jesus is my strength. In Romans chapter 5 or 6, Paul makes this very clear. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. By the way, write your name there. It's not those ungodly people. It's the people here. It's you. It's me. Christ died for me. Amen. My weakness broken is sin and shame and guilt. Romans 8, chapter 26, he adds, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For when we don't know what to pray for as we are, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf so that we can cry out to God, groanings, too, too strong for words. We are weak, 
in those moments he is strong. See, I, I am not asking you to justify your weakness. Again, that's a problem with a lot of athletes, isn't it? Well, you know, I'm not left-handed. You can't expect me to go left, coach. Come on. You didn't recruit me to go left. Oh, you, what do you mean? Like, like I, I'm not one of, those, one of those sort of quarterbacks that scrambles. I just want to sit in the pocket and throw it, right? Well, that's not acceptable in sports. It's for some reason acceptable for many of us as Christians. So long as no one knows, it's not that big of a deal. I'm unaware of that verse in the Bible. So I'm not asking you to justify your weaknesses. I'm asking you to war against them. For the day will come when we do not make war against our weaknesses. It will destroy us and it will destroy the people we claim to love. You are weak, but Jesus is stronger. Fight for the sake of your soul. Fight for the sake of your marriage. Fight for the sake of your family. Fight for the sake of your community. Fight for the glory of God. If you don't, curiosity will feed on your weakness. And you and I could fall. Well, in the time remains, we'll return to some of this next week. But I really want to show how this works even more broader in the Bible. We've seen, this, we've seen this setting, we've seen the sin. I want us to briefly, in the time remains, look at the cycle of temptation and sin. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has ever overtaken you that is not common to men. Let, 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 let me uh, give you a, uh, an updated version of that. That is, there is no such thing as new temptation, Right? Every temptation you've ever faced, today, yesterday, or tomorrow, is the same thing your ancestors faced thousands of years ago. When you read in the Bible, you still didn't. And you can change culture, change language, change dress, change, change technology, change anything you want. Ain't nothing changing, right? This is one of the things I love about history is, is, is it humbly keeps me from saying, <laughs> those losers back there didn't know what a germ was, right? Now, let me log on and, 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 and do this, right? Right? Somehow we're, we're entitled because we know what a light bulb is. Yet our hearts haven't changed. Our temptations haven't changed. Our lusts haven't changed. Right? The, the, you have not faced a single temptation in your life, and nothing has overtaken you that is not common to men and women throughout history. And so what we see then throughout the Bible is that like David, they fall for the same traps. The same pattern, the same cycle takes over, over and over again. So, so for example, we did this uh, uh, last time. Let's do it again. If I give you these words, what story of the Bible comes to your mind? Here they are. Eyes, exposure, good, take. Well, once again, it's the story of Adam and Eve. The story of Adam and Eve. So you go over to, to Genesis 3. Eve is being tempted by the serpent. And, and we read this, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, just to review from last Sunday night, that's the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. We talked about it there. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were open, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You know the story. Now, we could take those same words that we see in the temptation of Adam and Eve and find the same parallel here with the story of David and Bathsheba. 
Let me see if I can show it to you. Verse 2, David saw. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman. It's the same word in the Hebrew that Eve saw that the tree was good to eat. Desirable to make one wise. So too, David wakes up, he goes out, and he sees that which he desires the most. Secondly, David saw a woman bathing, thus she is naked. Just as Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, so the act of bathing implies exposure. It's not an accident that those, those, those details are given to us in both stories. Thirdly, David saw that she was beautiful. It says it there in verse 2 in your Bible. You could tell me if it says something else. But the ESV says beautiful. It's a good translation. It's not a literal translation, though. Let me tell you what the word literally is. Good. He saw that she was good. Now, I wouldn't recommend that sort of a wooden translation. That may be misinterpreted. But it's good theology. It's the same word that, that is used to describe Eve, that the fruit was good for fruit. And remember, what is that tree called? It is the tree of knowing good and evil. It is a tree that, upon taking it, you think you are wise, that it was uh, good for food, right? That it was wise to make you like God, but in reality, it will make you a fool. It's the knowledge of good and evil. What does David do here? He sees something that looks good. She is beautiful. She is desirable. It's the same temptation as Adam and Eve. Fourthly, notice in verse 4, David takes her for himself. And what does you see in the story of Adam and Eve? Eve took of the fruit and she gave to her husband. So too, David inquires, who, who is this person? Go and take her for me. She is mine. It's the same story. Separated by thousands of years. There is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. The point is that this cycle of behavior demonstrated by David is not unique to David. And we could do the same thing with Abraham and Hagar, do the same thing with Noah after the ark. We do the same thing with a whole lot of other stories that the same pattern is present. You and I are often caught in the same cycle since the garden, and it continues to ruin our lives. See, what we need here is not a how-to manual. Well, you should try this, or you should put on that, or you should use these words, or you should uh, do these sort of things. We don't need a how-to manual for temptation. What we need is true redemption. What we need is, is, is a liberator. I want to show you two ways that Jesus liberates us from, from temptation as quickly as we can. Number one, Jesus experienced temptation yet without sin. The good news of Jesus is that he has experienced the same temptations. He has overcome it. And he has conquered it by his death and resurrection. And we, we saw this with, with Matthew 4, that, the, that Jesus had the same pattern in his temptation as, as, as not only Adam and Eve, but also the Jews in the wilderness. The writer of Hebrews adds, chapter 4, Since then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. There's that word again. 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see what his argument is there. He says, we have a high priest who, who stands between us, us and God. And what separates Christianity from all other religions, all other faiths, secular or otherwise, is that God has come down to become one of us, as one of us, lived as one of us. This is this what Christmas is all about. That God in Christ is incarnated in the flesh. He lived a life like we do in every way, has experienced everything as we have yet without sin. So what we do not have is one whom we worship who is unsympathetic towards us. Because there isn't a temptation that is, that is uncommon to man. Some temptations you and I face, Christ face, yet he showed there is victory over sin. There is victory over temptation. And that victory is found in the second thing we need to see. Not only has Jesus experienced, but Jesus has covered. Jesus has covered. You can go back to the story of Adam and Eve. What is God's response to their sin? Two things. One, judgments. Secondly, grace. Judgment, grace. How does God show judgment? You have the curses to Adam and Eve and the serpent. The earth itself now groans for redemption, Paul said in Romans 8. But how does he show grace? You remember there in Genesis 3-7, it says they went and made loincloths. They covered up their sins. We'll talk about that next week with David, where he tries to deceive his way out of sin, out of responsibility. That's what Adam and Eve do. But what does God do? He goes and he takes an innocent animal, the first sacrifice mentioned in the Bible, and it dies in order to cover their shame. Later on, the story of Noah, we get this weird story after the ark that for some reason isn't in, in, in Veggie Tales and, 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 or in our Sunday school classes, right? And, 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 and Noah plants a garden. There's a vineyard, right? He eats of the fruit of the tree. It's the same story. He is naked. He is exposed. And you remember, what is it that, that his son Ham saw that he was shameful? It's the same story. But you remember, what do the other brothers do? Do they join in in their father's misery and sin and judgment? No, what do they do? They take, it's the same word in Genesis 3 and here in the story of, of David. They take a covering. They lay it over their father. Why? Because God responds to sin first in judgment and when there's repentance, grace. And what do we get in the story of David and Bathsheba? We get judgment here. That's what verses 6 and the rest of the chapter is all about. And bleeding into chapter 12 when we meet Nathan. So it's, 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 there's judgment here. And he will be held accountable. And this baby will not survive that she is pregnant with as a result. But then, if you will, turn to chapter 12, verse 13. Then we're done. Verse 13 of chapter 12. David said to Nathan the prophet... I have sinned against the Lord. Now, he wrote a whole psalm detailing that, that sentence right there, doesn't he? Now, he has sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against Uriah. He has sinned against Israel. He has sinned against his wives. He has sinned against a lot of people. But sin is ultimately an act of cosmic rebellion against our Creator, Redeemer, right? I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to him, notice this, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. 
You see, in the story of Adam and Eve, the, the curse is, the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. But what does God do in grace? He says, someone else will take that life for you. When David comes and he sins and violates his marriage and, and trust and everything else, what does God say? Death should be your lot, but grace will be what will be given to you. What does Christ say upon the cross? It is finished. Darkness at noon. The sins of the world upon his own shoulders, nailed to a cross. You are covered. You are redeemed. That's grace. So all that shame from our past temptations and failures. All the guilt of our weaknesses. Christ comes. And he covers our shame with the blood of the Lamb. And we have victory in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray.